TED Audio Collective. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. Canva presents unexplained appearances. It was an ordinary workday until... That presentation appeared out of thin air. Also, it's eerily on brand. Wait, did that agenda just write itself? Words appear, making this unexplainable case... Unexplainable? It's Canva's AI tools. I can generate slides and words in seconds. Really? <clears throat> the real mystery is why I'm only learning this now. Canva.com. Designed for work. HBR presents. everyone, you're listening to After Hours. I'm Young Me, and I'm here with Felix and Mihir. Hey, guys. Hey, hey Young Me. Hey, Mihir. <laughs> so this morning, I woke up to this wonderful email from a former student of mine, Mihir, and she was talking about you because a few days ago, she attended this thing that you did in Sydney, Australia, and she said it was just absolutely fabulous. So are you still in Sydney? I am still in Sydney, and the days are a blur. So what did you do? A seminar or you taught? Or Yes, I came here to speak to the annual shindig for all of the securities regulators around the world. And so I had a great time there. But then I gave a couple of seminars to the Harvard Club of Australia and a couple of other things, all as part of the book tour. And I think I know exactly who you're talking about. And she's fantastic. And we had a great time. Ooh. <laughs> I have a question for you, young me. Is checking email, is that the first thing you do in the morning? Um, <laughs> <laughs> so my morning routine is uh, none of your business, frankly. Exactly. Good answer, young me. Good answer. <laughs> okay. So I'm excited for tonight's conversation because I am going to insist that we do my topic tonight, Yay. which is Rihanna. Not exactly our comfort zone, but yes, <laughs> let's try. <laughs> um, and then Felix, I know you brought in some fuddy-duddy topic. Gonna... <laughs> you, you saw the news out of San Francisco, the technology capital of the world, so to speak, and the Board of Overseers just decided to block the police from using facial recognition software. So yes. I'd love to get your take on that. Okay. Sounds great. All right, great. Okay, Felix, so you wanted to talk about how comfortable we are living in a national digital panopticon. <laughs> <laughs> so to speak, or maybe not, who knows, yes. if San Francisco leads the way, as it often does. So this is the Board of Overseers in San Francisco voted to block the police from using facial recognition software. And already there's a sense that other cities in California and then certainly other cities across the country will put similar bans in effect. And this is against the backdrop of really a rapid 
increase in the use of facial recognition technology. You might remember the horrible Capital Gazette shooting uh, last year in Annapolis. Facial recognition software is part of the reason why they caught the perpetrator relatively quickly. Taylor Swift is using facial recognition software to identify stalkers at her concerts and so on and so on. So against the rapid use and implementation of this type of software, what do you think? If you had been on the board, would you have voted in support of the ban? Is the ban on the use of facial recognition software or is the ban on video capture of citizens like in the world? Because there's CCTV and there's people picking up my image Is that okay? That's totally okay, yes. All it's doing is it doesn't allow the police to then use facial recognition software to identify who's in these videos. Well, so I think there's two different issues here, right? One is about the precision with which this software works. And there are concerns that these softwares don't do that good a job with underrepresented groups. And given historic problems in the criminal justice system, we worry that this would only compound all those biases inside the criminal justice system. That, to me, is one problem. I actually think that's probably solvable. And by that, I mean that software, over time, could get better. And those biases could get better. That's not the part that worries me in the longer run. What worries me in the longer run is I don't like all this video capture being done by governments. And I I find that when I go to the UK and CCTV is everywhere. And in the US, we haven't had that tradition. And I quite like that. I don't like my face being captured all the time. I don't want it to be captured in the first place. And then Mm -hmm, I certainly mm -hmm. don't want state authorities to use facial recognition software to try to match it. I think there we are entering into like totalitarian landscape. I know that sounds like a kind of crazy off the grid kind of guy, but that that really does worry me. I would have voted in favor of the ban as well, in part because I think we all just need to pause for a second before we aggressively begin to roll out this kind of technology simply because we can. So right now it is an absolute free for all because there are no federal laws or regulations that create any kind of boundary on what's acceptable. And if you look at other countries, so China is an example of a country where there is extensive use of facial recognition software. And sometimes it creates an incredible wow factor. So Mm -hmm. if you go to the airport in China, you can walk up to a kiosk that will just read your face. And within seconds, the screen will show you where your gate is. And when you use that kiosk for the first time, it freaks people out. But there's a little bit of delight too because of the efficiency. But in China also though, the government uses it to surveil the Uyghur Muslim minority. And so it's a bit of a free-for-all and I would hate for us to go down this path before we are able to have a conversation about what are we comfortable with? What kind of regulation mm-hmm. should mm-hmm. we put in place? So yeah, I would have voted in favor of the ban. You just kind of summarized to me what was really worrisome, which is we're trading off what seemed to me to be kind of like tiny efficiency gains, which is, oh, isn't it cool I get to go to my gate quickly, with this much like deeper loss of privacy. And it's it's kind of crazy in a way. I think part of what's interesting about the current situation is we've been pretty careless about what can be collected in the first place. And 
one reason why it didn't matter so much was there was no way to really make use of all the information that we collected. And so say the whole debate around CCTV everywhere is like, yeah, so there's all these images and there's just no chance that anyone can actually, you know, at scale, then analyze who's doing what and who moves how in the public sphere. More recently, the National Institute of Standards and Technology, they have documented that even just in the last four or five Five years, mm-hmm. these systems have become 20 times better. We're now down to failure rates of 0.2%. But the bigger debate is the classic notion, at least in the United States, is that are you in a space where you can have a reasonable expectation of being private. Right. The reason why you need a wiretap to listen into a phone conversation is that when we call each other, we have an expectation of privacy. If we walk down a public road, we have no expectation of privacy. And as a result, that information, at least given the current legal landscape, is up for grabs, is up for analysis. But this is what's problematic about this. I don't think it's about reasonable expectation of privacy. So I don't want to be captured on video and have that funneled to the state on a 24-hour basis whenever I'm in public. And the fact that you say, well, oh, me here, you're in public space. You don't have a reasonable expectation of privacy. That doesn't feel right to me. That's how the current law works, right? That's the legal basis for all the CCTV. I think the problem with that is who's collecting the data. And the idea that the state is collecting the data is really problematic. Because once they have that data, they can do a lot of things with it. And that, to me, is the but larger But you're okay concern. with companies doing this? That's problematic for sure. But I usually have some control over that, right? Mm-hmm. But when the government does it in all public spaces, now we're talking about an entity that has incredible amounts of power knowing everything about where I am. But they're private companies that are doing it across all public and private spaces. So Well, but they can't. how can they do that in public spaces? Your phone knows where you are. At all times. But I can deny them location services. I have choices about that. <laughs> I mean, you think you can, but... <laughs> well, no, you're right. We don't know for yeah. sure. <laughs> yeah. You literally have to remove the SIM card, and that in and of itself is still not sufficient, right? So, But governments can do things... I mean, governments can put me in jail, and private actors can't, right? I mean, that's yeah, the difference. Yeah. Right? Look, I find it all increasingly troubling. You know, the biggest fear, at least with respect to governments, is that your private life becomes weaponized and used against you. In the case of commercial activity, it makes your private life a source of profit for other companies in ways that you might not necessarily be fully informed about. Right. But I got to tell you, like, at a whole different level, the whole thing is just making me increasingly uneasy. And if you had asked me a year ago, I would have been less uneasy because I would rationalize it by saying, I don't care. I don't care if people know Mm -hmm. where I go and they can take photos of me and I have nothing to hide. But what has made me increasingly uncomfortable is not the collection of the data, but my understanding of what they can now do with it. So they can take this metadata and the ability now to create a kind of meta intelligence about me that is unprecedented, that's what makes me feel really uncomfortable. And I think there is a cultural cost that we pay when we give up that kind of privacy. I kind of agree completely with what you're saying, young me, but there is a part of me which feels like we're on a train and it's moving <laughs> and like we can pause it, but God, it, I, I agree with everything you're it's saying. So but I guess true, it makes me- I mean, it used to be if you wanted privacy, you just went into your room and you shut the door. 
And think about it now, your phone is collecting data, your Alexa, your Fitbit, there's no privacy anywhere. And the reason it concerns me just at the level of our collective psyche, it disturbs me, is that privacy is a form of freedom. And it enables us to explore ourselves, to test the boundaries of who we are. So you might be a teenager trying to figure out your sexuality. You might be secretly contemplating a career change. You might be exploring alternative religions. In other words, privacy is freedom because it begins with this notion that there's something that belongs to you, and that's you, who you are, Mm -hmm. your inner desires, Mm -hmm. your behavioral tendencies, the very essence of your being belongs to you, and it's up to you who you share it with. I mean, this is what intimacy is. This is what it means to own your own sense of self. And when you give that to someone else, it's a special thing because you're basically saying, I'm sharing with you me. And now all of that is lost all meaning. And so we're just giving away to other people who we are. And that, to me, feels like we're losing something very, very important. You said it so beautifully. I think this is one of the reasons why Thinking about where we can and cannot reasonably have expectations of privacy, why this is so important. It seemed, you know, at one point in time, it seemed we're not really giving up all that much if there's no reasonable expectation of being private when you're in public spaces. And now it's not so clear because that information has gone from being utterly useless because you didn't have the technology to make sense of it to now being highly, highly relevant. And so what I fear a little bit is that the war on tools such as facial recognition in a way is not quite the right battle to fight because I think there's something much more fundamental that has happened. And the usual regulation that consent I think we know, you know, from the 168-page user agreement that you sign whenever you download the weather app, consent just doesn't work because you don't really have a sense of the trade-off that you're making when you consent to information about you being used in a particular way. Uh, Would either of you consider kind of giving up the technological devices to kind of reinstall a level of privacy in your life? Have you ever even <laughs> contemplated that? I mean, here, this is such a great question. Meaning. We are so inconsistent in the kind of exposure we'll tolerate. I mean, so right. we don't like being fingerprinted by government agents, but we will happily give our thumbprint to Apple to make it easier to log into our phones. Yeah. So now Apple has yeah. all of our fingerprints. And you get used to things so quick. I remember yeah. maybe yeah. a good year ago, it happened to me for the first time when I bought something at a duty-free shop in an airport that they scanned and captured the image of my passport. Right. I think I was buying pistachios or something like this. And like, right. why exactly do you need my passport information for me to be able to buy a bag of nuts? And today, I still find it a little curious, but I have basically, you know, if you buy something at the duty-free shop, basically they're going to capture your passport. But when you think about it, like, what can possibly be the justification of this? And yes, but it's a slippery slope. Yeah, increasingly, Mm -hmm. I am becoming more sensitive to how much privacy, how much it gives us human dignity. Mm -hmm. And it's not about, oh, I don't you know, my life is an open book kind of thing. Privacy is not the same thing as secrecy. Like when you go into the closet, we know what you're doing in there. You're changing your clothes, but we still respect your right to close the door. And so it's, we give something away when we reveal who we are. And that's why revelation is a gift. It's a gift of friendship and it's a gift of fellowship. And it's just, 
I don't know. It all feels very hopeless to me. <laughs> I, I don't know what else to say, which well, is at the same back time, to my I mean, original point. We're yeah. living in a digital panopticon. Yeah. The fact that we're having this conversation and the fact that at least the three of us, I mean, Mihir was probably always uh, in the right place, <laughs> but at least the two of us have moved a little bit in yeah, thinking about what this means. I think it's a good sign. Yeah. I'm optimistic because I think the very fact that our feelings and ideas about what is happening right now have changed, that's the beginning of change. You know, Felix, that is such a good point. A year ago, we had this conversation, and Mihir was, <laughs> this is horrible. And, you know, you and I were just, yeah, you know, it's not that big a deal. No, and now no. I find myself in a very different place. Mihir, don't get smug. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it would be really interesting if a, if a candidate in 2020 like really embrace this issue and try to make a big deal about it. Because I haven't really heard somebody talk as eloquently much, as, yeah. you know, you've been talking sure. about a young me. And it would be interesting if a candidate really pushed this as an issue. And, you know, to the point you made, young me, which is we need a pause. But we also need somebody to lead the discussion. Yeah. Right? And yeah. it would be great yeah. if a serious candidate yeah, yeah. actually took this up as an issue because we could then really benefit from having a national conversation on it yeah. in a yeah. way that's not happening at all. Yeah. Yeah. So who knows, it would be a good idea for the candidates to listen to after hours. <laughs> no, or alternatively, Felix, I'm thinking, Felix, it might just be better if we just do Young Me 2020. Oh, so, what do you okay. think? <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, out of time, guys. All right. Thanks, guys. <laughs> All right, so Rihanna... This past week, LVMH, which is the world's largest luxury goods conglomerate, announced it is going to launch a new fashion house led by Rihanna. It's Fenty Maison. Is this a big deal? Did this catch your eye? Well, yeah. So I think it's a big deal for a couple of reasons, right? One is it's a big deal because LVMH does not start a fashion house every other day, right? <laughs> it's a huge investment and they only do it once in a while. I think the last one might have been Christian Lacroix. The second reason why it's huge is it's the first time, I think, a woman of color has run a house, which is also kind of amazing. But to me, the bigger story is this is like the next step in celebrities taking ownership of their brand and creating businesses around themselves. And that is really, I think, interesting. So I had a similar reaction in that I think it's really interesting to see that this happens. What I'm less sure about this, is it something big and systematic that makes us rethink how luxury works and the role of celebrities? Or is it just that here's this one woman, she's just basically super talented at everything. Like she's a great musician. She's a fabulous singer. She has actually quite a history of designing clothing also. And so the part that I'm less sure about is, is it more a story about celebrities and how they will interact with commerce? Mm -hmm. Or is it more about, oh my God, someone like Rihanna comes along every decade once or twice, and it's more a story about her? Yeah, so let's unpack it a little bit. So if you think about it from the perspective of a conglomerate like LVMH, historically, there have been many flirtations with celebrity. So it used to be, and it continues to be the case, that celebrity endorsements are really common. And so you have Nicole Kidman at Chanel and Natalie Portman at Dior as sort of these celebrity brand ambassadors. The second stage, which we've seen a ton of in the last 10 years, 
has been this whole phase where they begin to dabble a little bit more aggressively in collaborations, Mm -hmm. particularly with respect to streetwear and sportswear. So Kanye and Adidas. Yes, Yes, exactly. What you're seeing here, this is very different. Mm Here, you mentioned this. LVMH has not launched a new house Mm -hmm. in more than 30 years. Right. So the way the company is organized, they have 17 houses. In fashion, right? Exactly. But these fashion houses, these are brands like Dior, Givenchy, Celine, Louis Vuitton. These are heritage brands that are part of this richly historical European definition of culture and luxury. And now they have elevated Rihanna to that rank. And so it's quite the seismic shift in how we think about the upper echelon Mm -hmm. of luxury. Why do you think they went with Rihanna? So one of the things to think about is what does Rihanna have that is really hard to get for LVMH? And I think the answer is access to a young, very diverse audience that Rihanna is much better at building this audience than, you know, LVMH with all of its marketing savvy and all the experience that they have. That's not something they can easily do. And so I'm thinking we're seeing this power shift because there's a new way to build audiences and it's all online and Instagram plays a huge role. And LVMH is basically shut out unless they go through someone like Rihanna. With the exception of Beyonce, I don't think anyone kind of comes close to Rihanna. And I think the reason why is, first, she's durable. She's been around for 15 years now, and she's very young, but she's demonstrated her capacity to survive. And that is amazing. But I think what is special about her is that she works in high culture as well as on the low side, too, which is she's broad mass appeal. But then she's cultivated an image in the world of haute couture and in very high-end worlds as being edgy. And I think that edginess has given her something that none of the others have. Her ability to kind of be broadly popular, to be edgy, and then also to kind of appeal to people who perceive themselves to have higher sensibilities, I think that is unique. And that doesn't work for the other folks, with the exception of, again, Beyonce. So that makes her special. The thing I would add is that she is a proven quantity. So LVMH, they began by doing these joint ventures. And of course, the most high-profile one they did was with Fenty Beauty. So Fenty Beauty is the cosmetics brand that Rihanna launched in late 2017, Did you guys follow that story, the launch of Fenty Beauty? The only thing I remember really is there's this tagline, naked is not beige, which I thought was just spot on, really like a great line to sort of position the brand and what it was all about. Yeah. So when Fenty Beauty dropped, it hit like a meteor. Mm -hmm. She launched with 40 shades, with beautiful quality, priced accessibly, with a particular emphasis on providing extensive shade choices for people with deeper skin tones. So now, why is this a big deal? It's a big deal because historically, one of the criticisms of this industry was that there's a whole spectrum of humankind that this industry was missing out on. So she drops Fenty Beauty, and in the first month of her launch, $72 million in sales. In 2018, which is the first full year of Fenty Beauty, she did half a billion dollars in sales. But is your sense that, you know, there's competition? Is your sense when you talk about the beauty line is now that it's out and now that there's demonstrated demand, are we seeing that most 
beauty companies will offer similar products or similar quality? Yeah, so that's a great question. So what happens in any industry where copycatting is not that difficult, Mm -hmm. the survivors tend to be the ones that demonstrate that they can create an innovation engine. Mm -hmm. And so they're always innovating. Everybody's always playing catch up. So she then launched concealers, Mm -hmm. her body lava. And of course, in these industries, your ability to do that well is determined by, for example, your taste-making ability and your ability to understand mm-hmm, what right. the market's going to respond yeah. to, yeah, your yeah. timing ability. So mm-hmm. your ability to have a sense of when is it too soon to launch the next thing? When is it about time to launch the next thing? In other words, in the last 18 months with Fenty Beauty, she has demonstrated an extraordinary ability to guide this brand forward in a way that shows remarkable mm-hmm. potential. Is Sephora an important part of the story? Mm -hmm. I'm thinking of the Pixar-Disney relationship where you have just like incredible creativity at Pixar and then this best-in-class marketing machine called Disney that can bring out the products. Is that the kind of relationship that we should think that's the Rihanna-LVMH tie-up? Yeah, you know, by partnering with LVMH. So, for example, when she launched Fenty Beauty, it launched in Sephora. which meant that it launched in hundreds and hundreds of stores in a heavily orchestrated, choreographed campaign. So it hit the world all at once. You can only do that with LVMH. And this in many ways is why the latest announcement about, if you think about Fenty Maison, which is the new fashion line, Mm -hmm. I mean, she is going to have access to the best platform in the world in terms of distribution, supply chain, access to the most prime real estate in the most important cities around the world. And so this is, I think, where the partnership becomes really important. I never understood fully how much of LVMH power comes from real estate until I was talking to them. And I realized that their ability to kind of get prime locations and rental rates that are really good because they become the defining characteristic of a mall like IFC in Shanghai or any other place. And then they have so much power that they're actually, their economics are so much better. Yeah. And there, of course, the interesting question is, I mean, the importance for real estate for Chanel, I think is going to be very different compared to the importance of real estate for Fenty. I think it's maybe another way to think about the relationship that it gives them access to marketing resources into channels where they have not really played traditionally because that wasn't their core audience. That's the other piece of this that is fascinating to me, which is that in effect, the best way to do that is to partner with a pre-existing brand, which is what Rihanna is in effect. Mm -hmm. And that strikes me as the really interesting thing to see over time, which is, do we no longer want to build our brands? And is it just better to buy a brand? And buying a brand basically means buying a celebrity. So is there any celebrity out across this landscape that you would look at and say, that's the next big one? That's one that could potentially be elevated to this heightened level. I think it's hard to discount Kanye West and what he's done. Of course, it comes with like a huge amount of volatility with him (laughs) because, (laughs) um, because of what he says and what he does. But it's hard to just discount the fact that he created a fashion line that went high and was able to succeed and went low and Broad and was able to succeed. And I think Beyonce and her tie-up with Adidas is probably of similar significance. It's always a little hard to know from the outside. Maybe the only difference being that Rihanna seems to be 
super hands-on. Obviously, there's a creative team around her, but down to details, she seems to be super, super involved. And I think that's part of what's really special and unique about her. What do you think, young me? I think your instinct about Kanye is exactly right. I think he is somebody who the industry, and I'm talking about the high fashion industry, has kept an eye on, yet hasn't fully embraced. And I think what he has demonstrated, I mean, he has a track record now for being heavily, heavily involved in design. There's a particular aesthetic that he has brought to the world. And I think people associate that aesthetic with him. So it's uniquely his. So I find him to be really fascinating in that regard. Final question. On the one hand, from an LVMH perspective, you could say that very easily this is an attempt to appeal to younger customers and broaden the customer base. But, you know, LVMH plays the long, long game, right? (laughs) The Chanel game. (laughs) Yeah, they are not thinking in terms of what's going to sell tomorrow. When they launch a house, they're thinking about generation after generation, and they're doing it in the high luxury space. This is not low luxury. This is not coach. This is not Burberry. This is high luxury. And so they're making a bet that this is what high luxury is going to be for multiple generations. Are they making a mistake? Are they going to regret this? For the size of the group, I think there's a $30 million capital investment, which is more than they spend on other houses. But it's, you know, is this sort of a make or break kind of decision? I mean, even if, say, Fenty turns out to be successful for the next five years and then there's some sort of a meltdown, I don't think for the group as a whole, this is this significant uh, business investment. I think it's got to be a winner. And the way they've branded it, and to your point about the way they did the cosmetics line, it's accessing a whole new population that wants to actually aspire to a brand. And so I think it's a fantastic move. So Fenty Maison will debut in Paris this summer, and I will be watching. (laughs) (laughs) And you will tell us about it, I hope. (laughs) (laughs) I will. Good. (laughs) Okay, thanks, guys. Okay, guys, I have a really good pick for you. So on HBO, there is a new miniseries called Chernobyl. So I've only watched two episodes, and I think there will be a total of five episodes. And it's a recounting of the Chernobyl incident. And it is so well done. And it is so harrowing. And what I find remarkable about it is the pacing of it is so measured. In other words, they didn't Hollywood it up. Mm -hmm. They didn't create Mm -hmm. the pounding music. It's none of that. It unfolds the way you imagine the actual incident unfolded. Is it a documentary? No, I'm sorry. It's not a documentary, but it's based tightly on the actual incident to the point where specific characters represent real people. Mm -hmm. You know, when I saw it on HBO, I wasn't going to watch it. And then I got a text from one of my sons, and it just had one line. It said, Mom, Chernobyl, you got to watch it. And so then I thought, okay, I'll give it a try. You have to be in the right mood for it, but it's really good. So I would recommend it. So Mihir, what do you got? So I got something lighter, um, (laughs) which is a TV show and a comedy that was on BBC a couple years ago, and now it has a second season, and it's available on Amazon Prime. And it's called Fleabag. And it is pretty dark humor, but it is hysterical. And it's created by a woman named Phoebe Waller-Bridge, who started 
with a one-woman show, I think, in live theater. And then it became a TV show. And it's just about her life and the life of a young woman who has had some bad things happen to her. But it's about the way she kind of makes her way in the world. And it is both hilarious and also thought-provoking. Mm. is really fantastic. So it's called Fleabag, mm. dark and funny and really thought-provoking. So Fleabag is my pick. Didn't she also create Killing Eve? You're absolutely right. So she wrote and produced Killing Eve, mm. and she's also like 33 years old, which is crazy. Wow. 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 Fantastic. Okay, Felix. The New York Times had a headline not so long ago that caught my attention, the best green salad in the world. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and that was like wow. the most emailed. It was most emailed forever, right? Are you kidding? It became like a really yeah. popular article. Yeah. So this is uh, from a restaurant in New York in the West Village, uh, Via Carota. But I thought, like, how can that be? You know, we, we serve green salad basically forever. Like, how can it be that all of a sudden someone invents like a far a far <laughs> better way to <laughs> crack salad. the code on green salad? And so... As you can imagine, I had to try to make that salad sauce. And it's all the things you'd expect. It's olive oil, it's sherry vinegar, it's shallots, and so on. So so nothing special, except there are a few things. So for instance, after you cut the shallots, you rinse them in water, and then you steep them in water for a little while. And, you know, it's just amazing about cooking, how sometimes the tiniest little details really can make a difference. So if you Google it, I'm sure it's easy to find. Is it really the best green salad <laughs> sauce on the planet? I am not totally sure. Is it pretty darn amazing? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> As someone who is trying to teach myself how to cook, I need to ask you one question. So when you steep shallots for a few seconds, it really changes it? It really changes it. It's, you have to do it to believe it. Huh, okay. Via Carota, green salad. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and in particular, salad sauce. All right. Fantastic recommendations. I guess that's it for this week. Thanks, everyone, for listening. This is After Hours from the HBR Podcast Network. Support for the show comes from Brooks Running. I'm so excited because I have been a runner, gosh, my entire adult life. And for as long as I can remember, I have run with Brooks Running Shoes. Now I'm running with a pair of Ghost 16s from Brooks. Incredibly lightweight shoes that have really soft cushioning. It feels just right when I'm hitting my running trail that's just out behind my house. You now can take your daily run in the better than ever Go 16. You can visit brooksrunning.com to learn more. You're growing a business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate, no coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started.